Good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit to be in our midst right now. Would you come and be our teacher? Enlighten your word to our hearts. Fill us that we may go out from here with the grace of Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. About eight years ago, Tim and I embarked on a journey to an undiscovered country. It was about this time of year, and we were setting out to go to a new place where we had never been to find new territory, new people, new friends that we had never met. And so we came to the undiscovered country of Wilmore, Kentucky, <laughs> and we have found those beautiful new friends and so much grace here. About six years ago, Tim and I set out on another journey into an undiscovered country. It was new territory for us, new terrain, even though we didn't realize it. We thought it was familiar territory. We thought, as Paul says in this passage, that it was territory we had known from infancy all our lives. But we quickly found that it was an undiscovered country. It was a journey into daily singing and wrestling with and praying and loving the Psalms. Now, we had loved the Psalms all our life, as far as we knew. We had gone to them for comfort, for praise, for prayer, the way I think most all of us do. They're the most beloved book of the Bible, probably, for many people. But we had never encountered them in the way that Paul refers to in this passage. Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God and is, makes us wise for salvation. And useful. they are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now that was not a way we had approached the Psalms, to be useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And yet, that's the way that the early apostles approached the Psalms. Look at what they did in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. They went to the Psalms to process how to respond to Judas and his betrayal. They were, they were blown away by that. They didn't know what to do. So they went to two Psalms, probably two of the most difficult Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And from there, they got direction about how to process this emotion they felt about Judas's betrayal and how to move forward through it. They went to the Psalms to proclaim the resurrection. In the day of Pentecost, in Peter's sermon, he preaches the resurrection from Psalm 16. And then he goes on to teach about the ascension from Psalm 110. They went to the Psalms to preach about salvation in Christ alone. We thought that happened at the Reformation. No, <laughs> they preached about salvation in Christ alone from Psalm 118 in um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, where he says, you, speaking to the religious leaders, 
Um, you, the stone which you builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. They went to the Psalms to pray about persecution. When Peter and John were thrown in prison and then were released in Acts chapter 4, how did they begin their prayer as they gathered for prayer to pray about that persecution? They went to Psalm 2, and that became their launching place for praying. The apostles saw theology in the Psalms and wisdom and training and teaching, and most importantly, their lives had been saturated and immersed in the Psalms. And so all of these insights were just, just naturally came out because they had immersed their lives in this worship book that God has given us as a means of grace. It was their daily orientation to life. The Psalms provided that and formed that in them so that in both praise and in lament, in both trust and in bewilderment, in the confidence of God's covenant love, but also in the silence of God or his apparent abandonment. In all of these things, the Psalms were cultivating in them the humility and the trust that is the posture of the Christian life. And so they will do the same for us if we will avail ourselves of this, what I have come to see as a missing means of grace. They'd come up there, right? <laughs> okay, we talk about means of grace a lot in, um, at Asbury. But I think this is one that we haven't often thought about as a missing means of grace in our lives. And if we will avail ourselves of this missing means of grace, I think our lives will recover um, a passion and a confidence in God's unfailing love that somehow we just need to recover in the church today. Now, as we have talked about um, our journey into this undiscovered country with people, there are three statements that seem to surface again and again and again. And so I just want to take a look at those and address those three statements today as a way of just sharing how we have discovered um, not so much that they're untrue, but just more depth um, than, than we first, we probably thought these same things before entering into this journey. But um, I'd like to just talk about these three statements that we have discovered, or that we have heard <laughs> from many people. The first is, the Psalms are all about transparency and expression of the full range of emotions before God. Now, is that the way that you basically think about the Psalms? A lot of you? <laughs> That's what we've heard over and over and over again. And they are that. It's not that they're not that. It's just that there's so much more than that. They do give us a wonderful gift of modeling how to express the full range of authentic life with God, authentic emotion. And whatever that is, we can bring it to God. And that is a wonderful gift that the Psalms give us. That's one gift the Psalms give us. But it's just that there's so much more. The Psalms give us 150 different journeys, and each one of them is formative for us. Each one of them has purpose in forming our hearts and in helping us to lay the tracks for whatever journeys life brings our way. As Casey said, uh, Psalm 1 talks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Well, the Psalms engage with real life as it is in the real world, which is full of wickedness. 
It's full of wickedness. We rarely sing about wickedness in our Christian worship, but the Psalms do it all the time. They sing about wickedness. Why? Because they're engaging with authentic life, the way it really is on the ground. We encounter righteousness and wickedness, and the Psalms help us know how to orient ourselves in the midst of that. I feel like the Psalms have given us 150 new friends in this undiscovered country. Friends that we know really well now, but that every time we meet them again, we discover new things in them. The Psalms also give us a theology, a lot of theology, about God's character, who he is, and the theological grounding in his covenant love. The word hesed appears in the Psalms 127 times. It's like the recurring, constant, undergirding refrain, like an ocean wave that just carries underneath all of the Psalms the covenantal loving kindness of God. So that no matter what you encounter in life, the psalmist is modeling for us an unwavering trust we might, our lives may feel like they've been completely derailed, but there's this grounding in this unwavering trust in God's unfailing love. We sang about it in Psalm 32. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. It said many are the woes of the wicked. Well, many are the woes of the righteous too. <laughs> we, we encounter many woes, but the unfailing love of the the covenant love of God is that underlying grounding that the Psalms root us in. The Psalms give us perspective of eschatological hope, that God is in control and is going to set everything right, no matter what, no matter how much the world looks like it's been turned on its head and that evil is prospering and wickedness is flourishing. The Psalms remind us that we have this eschatological hope that God's going to set everything right and the way of the wicked is going to be overthrown, and the new creation is not going to have any wickedness in it, praise God. The new creation, wickedness is going to be ended. Evil is going to be completely over. And that is the hope of the psalmist over and over and over again, that we have this eschatological certainty. So even Jesus picks up on this, this two ways that we sang about in Psalm 1 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 where he says there is a broad way that leads to destruction and there is a narrow way that leads to life and few are those who find it. The two ways are ever before us in the world. Every day we have choices to make. Every day we can decide, am I going to harbor this bitterness in my heart or am I going to release it? Every day, am I going to speak this unkind word or am I going to stop? Every day, we have choices to walk in one of these two ways. And the means of grace of the Psalms is reminding us all the time, walk in the way of the righteous. Paul actually brings this to kind of full fruition, I guess, in Romans 5, where he talks about the two ways in terms of those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those are the two ways now. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And in Christ, we can walk in the way of the, of the righteous. He is the way, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. So in him, the only true righteous one, we walk in the way of the righteous as we are in Christ. 
The Psalms also give us strands of the whole canon of scripture. I can't tell you how many times we're just singing through a psalm and it's like, oh my goodness, this is from this book or this book or this book in the scriptures brought into the context of worship. It's really wonderful how the psalms are actually encapsulating the whole canon of scripture for us as an act of worship. And so you find the trisagion of Isaiah 6, the holy, holy, holy. It's brought into Psalm 99 three times. Holy, 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 God is holy. We find the whole history of Israel. Um, Psalm 105, 106, Psalm 78, these recount the whole history of Israel. And you think, why do we spend time as an act of worship recounting the whole history of Israel? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us to do it. He says, all of these things were written as warnings for us so that we also don't go the way of what the mistakes that Israel made. So we, re we recount the history of the Old Testament in a context of worship, as an act of worship. Um, the Abrahamic covenant and of, from Genesis and the Aaronic blessing from Numbers are brought together into an act of worship in Psalm 67. The uh, pronouncement of woe and the foolishness of idolatry, which Isaiah and Jeremiah give us in the prophetical books, they're brought into the Psalms in Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 of the foolishness of idolatry. So many strands of scripture are brought. Uh, the doctrine of creation comes out in the Psalms. There, there are just so many doctrinal theological things and strands from all over scripture that the Psalms give us, but they frame them in the context of worship which is a place where we sing them and we internalize them and they become part of us. There are also theological tensions and mysteries that can only be truly grasped in the context of worship before the face of God. And I think that this is a really special gift that the Psalms give us. Um, in 1988, Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. How many of you read that book? Any of you know that book? Disappointment with God. It's a, it's a good book. It, it asks, he, he frames three questions that people who have become disappointed with God ask. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? Well, it's good to ask those questions, but Philip Yancey's not the first one to ask them. <laughs> Those are questions that the psalmists have asked for centuries and centuries. The psalmists have asked them in the context of lament. They have fired questions at God, especially Psalm 13 and Psalm 77, fire just rapid fire questions at God. Where are you? Have you forgotten your covenant love? Have you forgotten to look upon your people? Um, all the questions that Philip Yancey asks in that book have been asked by the psalmist. And the psalmist is laying the tracks in these psalms for when we encounter those questions, when we wrestle with those questions, we've already entered into that journey vicariously through the psalmist's journey. And we've learned that lament is the language of faith. Lament is the voice of faith, faith in a God who is covenant love even though I don't feel it right now. Faith in a God who is there, even though he seems silent right now. You see, the Psalms have already led us on that journey. And so when we come to that place in our lives where we ask those questions, we say, 
The psalmist has already been there. He's already trained my feet in this journey. And I know that God's covenant love is there, even though I don't feel it. In 1981, Harold Kushner wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. How many of you have read that book? Okay. <laughs> he wrestles with, of course, this um, horrible mystery that we have to wrestle with, with how can God be both sovereign and loving? How can God be both? And unfortunately, he does not answer the question well. Um, <laughs> he bifurcates these two and pits them against each other. But that's not what the Psalms do. The Psalms hold them together in this mystery of God's character. Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12 says, one thing you have spoken, God, and two things I have heard. Don't you love that? One thing he's spoken, these are one thing, but I've heard these two things, that God is powerful and strong, that you, O Lord, are powerful and strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Isn't that beautiful? In the context of worship, before the face of God, the psalmist just says, I may not understand it, so many theological books will be written on this topic and try to sort it out. But one thing I do in the face of God in worship, I confess that these two things are both true and they coexist together. And I have to live my life in the seam of those two things being held together. So yes, the Psalms give us a lot of raw emotion, a whole range of emotion, but they give us so much more, so much more. Okay. The second statement, some portions of the Psalms are not suitable for Christian worship. Have you ever felt this? Yeah. Um, I think if we're honest, we, we get to these verses. Uh, you know, there are verses that kind of give us pause and we say, can I really pray this prayer? Um, that's true. That's that's a part of the experience in the Psalms. And I know as we were singing through them, we would get to some of these verses and we'd say, okay, what do we do with this? How do we process this? Um, but as we have wrestled with them, with these verses, God has taught us so much. You see, the, the, the first response, unfortunately, that the church seems to make is that we skip over those verses or we just cut them out. If you have a responsive reading and you notice it'll say Psalm so-and-so and it'll say verses one to five and then seven to 10. You know, well, what happened to verse six? You know, why aren't we gonna read that verse? <laughs> it's part of all scripture is inspired by God, isn't it? Who are we to say that, who are we to, that's not our remit to say, I'm, I just choose to delete verse six and not read it. Um, we cut them out, we skip over them. We pretend they're not there, but they're there. So we have to wrestle with them. We have to do something with those difficult verses. And in the process of wrestling with them, God teaches us things. He teaches us things we never would have learned if we weren't willing to wrestle with them. One thing that we've learned is that God interrupts a trajectory of a psalm with the gospel of grace. We learn about that interruption of the gospel, but it also reminds us that there's a trajectory for those who do not embrace that interruption. So for instance, Psalm 69, which is um, a psalm that in many ways prefigures Christ's passion on the cross as Psalm 22 does, 
um, is going through this journey, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs of my head. Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, for comforters, but found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Does this sound like the passion? Yeah. So when you sing this psalm, you're envisioning Christ walking through this journey. This is describing his experience. And yet when you get to the place where you come upon one of those uncomfortable verses where the psalmist says, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. At that moment, you hear Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's like, wow, you know, I was tracking this whole journey right along. The whole passion is here. And then all of a sudden, Father, forgive them instead of may their names be blotted out of the book of life. So Jesus is giving us this interruption of the gospel that cuts into the middle of this journey. But by doing that, he's not erasing that judgment. Judgment is not erased. It's carried by Christ. He takes it upon himself. He's the one who takes those curses and enters into every one of those imprecations that we find in the Psalms. He carries those imprecations on our behalf. But for those who don't avail themselves of that interruption, for those who don't embrace that, the trajectory is still there. The wicked will be blotted out. This will come. And so a psalm like that leads us to two things. One, passionate worship of Jesus who carried these imprecations for us and bore the cross and bore the curse and entered into it but also a missional response for those who have not yet embraced that and who need to, to know that interruption because that trajectory still stands and that direct tra trajectory is still coming. And they need to know that. And I think sometimes in our celebration of grace and mercy, which is abundant and beautiful, we sometimes forget that there is a trajectory of judgment and that, that broad way that leads to destruction, which Jesus himself taught about, is still there. And, we, and the Psalms remind us of that. Now, yes, mentioning imprecations brings us to um, how do we deal with actually using these words in our own prayers? Um, because they're not just in a few Psalms. They're kind of sprinkled throughout about 145 of the 150, it seems like. There's a lot of talk about enemies and a lot of talk about the wicked and a lot of imprecations and curses that are uttered. So um, I am not going to be able to answer that in the next 10 minutes I have. But <laughs> um, I will say this just briefly. There are two lenses that have been very helpful for us in uh, wrestling with those particular passages. One is that of spiritual warfare, where Paul says in Ephesians 6, as you know, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the spiritual realms. And Peter reminds us that we do have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. We do have enemies, and one particular really horrific enemy, and we can pray against him and against those powers and demonic forces in the spiritual realms and bring down God's curse upon them. We can do that. 
And the second lens that's been helpful for us is that of release and transference. And this is a lens, I know Tati is here, that I, I think she would definitely say this is a means of grace. That when you have suffered tremendous injustice or agony or pain at the hands of someone else who actually delighted in your pain, or sometimes I look at the wickedness in the world and, um, and I just, it just tears at your heart so much and you feel this anger rising up against, in, in, inside you against it. This righteous indignation of how can people be so evil? How can they do such evil things? And you have to do something with that anger, right? Somebody who is, has watched their own children be tortured and killed in front of their eyes, how do they deal with that anger? What do they do with it? Now, you know, God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says that in the Old Testament too. That's not just a New Testament concept. It's in the Old Testament. And Jesus calls us to forgive, but sometimes forgiveness is a long, arduous road. And it doesn't just happen at the snap of a finger. We can't just, you know, say, okay, I forgive. Sometimes it requires pouring forth that anger into the one place where it's safe to pour it out, and that is into the presence of God. That's the one place. These, all of these are prayers, after all. They're not actions. The psalmist isn't going out and taking vengeance. He's just saying he wants to. <laughs> and, and I think anybody who cares about justice wants to sometimes. And so what do we do with that? We pour it out into God's presence. We speak to God those things that we're feeling, and we pour it out. And in the process of pouring it out, God's forgiveness has room to move in, right? It becomes a means of grace. Even the imprecations are a means of grace God has given us. In fact, not just given us, but intended for us to use. He gave this book for the church to have as their worship book. So we're missing a terrible means of grace. I mean, a wonderful means of grace if we don't uh, make use of it. Okay, the final thing is... Why, should we, why would we sing songs in Christian worship that never mention the name of Jesus? Um, so we know that there are messianic psalms that point to Jesus that are quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Jesus. Of course, there are those particular ones that are obviously messianic. And I would say, of course, we write new hymns and psalms and worship songs. That's the glory of the Christian life is that we can celebrate endlessly, eternally, the things that Christ has done for us. So we should always write new songs. Um, but it's not just that there are a few messianic psalms that point to Jesus. I would say, because these are scripture and God breathed, that all of them point to Jesus. All of them point to Jesus because Jesus is the telos of all scripture. Right? He's what all scripture is pointing to. So I would say all the Psalms point to Jesus. In fact, he himself said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. All 150. <laughs> um, they're all pointing to Jesus. And in fact, they're all the songs of Jesus. He sang these Psalms long before they became our worship book. They were his worship book. As a little Jewish boy, he would have sung these psalms and learned them by heart and sang, and sang them with the people of God all his life. 
So these are his songs. Um, and if we listen, we can hear his voice singing alongside us as we sing. We never sing them alone. We always sing them in the presence of the risen Christ. And his voice is there singing alongside of us. Because in the incarnation, the psalmist's journey became his journey. And our journey became his journey. And so in the incarnation, Jesus is singing these words with us now when we sing them. Um, one of the perhaps darkest psalms, Psalm 88, um, is a psalm of lament. It's a, it's a long extended lament. And you can hear Jesus' voice. It, it's a psalm that ends, darkness is my closest friend. And you can hear, as, as you work your way through that psalm, if you think of Jesus in Caiaphas' pit on the night before the crucifixion, you can hear Jesus' voice, which he may have done because he would have known this psalm, saying, all my friends have left me and fled. There is no one who cares for me. There is no one who stands with me. Darkness is my closest friend. Can you hear Jesus' voice? And the beauty of that is when you feel like that, when you are in that dark pit and you feel like everyone has left and no one is there and no one cares, you know Jesus is here. Jesus has been in this pit. Jesus has said those words and felt those things. And therefore, you're never in the pit alone. He was in the pit alone, but we're never in the pit alone. Jesus is always there alongside us, and his voice is singing those psalms of lament right along with us. And I just, I love how in Romans 8, when Paul is um, giving this wonderful proclamation that nothing can separate us from the covenant love, the loving kindness, the love of God, which we know in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from that. And so he's going through this beautiful, and it's gaining momentum, and he's preaching, and all of a sudden, he just kind of comes to a dead stop. And he says, as it is written, and he quotes this one verse from Psalm 44, which is another lament, kind of a dark lament like Psalm 88, and he plops it right down there in the middle of all of this covenant love, which we know in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to finish the chapter and says, you know, therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I just love how he does that, even in the middle of this celebration of all that Jesus has done for us. He reaches back and he says, remember that lament? Remember that time where everything was dark and you just felt like God wasn't there? I'm going to bring it right here into the middle of the covenant love of God, which is known in Jesus Christ. And that all of the lament of that psalm is gathered up in that one verse and plopped right there into the love of Jesus and swallowed up in it. So, yes, these songs are the songs of Jesus. They're also the songs of his church. These songs are the songs that have been sung for 2,000 years by Christians. No other worship can claim that, can make that claim. You realize these are the shared, what I would call the public square of worship for the whole people of God around the whole world throughout all time. This is the one group of worship songs that every Christian shares. No matter where they are, no matter what culture they're in, no matter what style of worship they like, we all share this worship book. This is the shared book of worship for the whole church. It's the core of worship that has sustained the church for 2,000 years. It provides the foundation upon which we build all the rest of our worship songs that we write. 
And these songs are God-breathed and God-inspired in a very different way than any hymn or chorus or spiritual uh, contemporary song will be inspired. God does inspire us to write new hymns and new worship songs, but not in the same way as he inspired these. These are God-breathed songs of worship, and they are useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness and for pouring out emotion. <laughs> They're useful for all of that. These are God's means of grace that he intended for us to have. And I think that the church needs to reclaim them. We go all over the country worshiping in all kinds of different settings, but very seldom do we actually sing or even read a psalm. The church is losing this means of grace. Some traditions are retaining it, but to a large extent, they're being lost. They've been replaced. They've been kind of shoved to the side. And we really need to reclaim them because the church needs the power and the, and the, the grounding and the theology and the teaching that these worship songs give us. They don't just come back easily. You, you, you have to live with them. You have to live with them every day. Live with them. They reorient your life into the ways of God, and they tutor our soul in our life with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little book, Psalms, the Prayer Book, the Bible, says this. Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. I think the church today needs that power. We need that means of grace. And I just pray that you, as you go out from this place to different congregations all over the place, that you will carry this means of grace with you that God intends for us to have. We're going to close with one more psalm that Casey's going to lead us in. And um, for one thing, I just want to say that this is kind of a general principle. That in, in this psalm, the psalmist talks about going to the altar of God, this longing to go to the altar of God. Well, the alt whenever you hear the psalmist talk about going to the temple, going to Jerusalem, going to the altar, um, what he's expressing is a longing to be in the presence of God because that's where God's presence was. It was in Jerusalem, in the temple. So in your mind, you're singing going to the altar. Um, it's going to the presence of God, and the presence of God is preeminently... It found in Jesus, right? So when you, when you hear this, all of these longings going to the altar, going to the, the presence of God, it's going to Jesus, fleeing to Jesus, and, the, and longing for that presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us. Um, this psalm starts with a lament. It starts in a place of lament. And then it leads us into a prayer, and the refrain is this prayer, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. That's how I emerge from lament, with that prayer. And then finally it ends in hope, hope in God, for I will again praise him. That beautiful um, hope that the Psalms always point us to. So let's sing Psalm 43.